makes a dream so very different from any other dream. Where is that straight line that I can hold up to the line? Say no, this is not right. This does not stand up. Okay, well that was uh, a unique, exclusive mix of The Light from Spock's Beard, the opening part, um, with Neil Morse, Nick DiVirgilio, and Ted Leonard all having their take. Of course, that's been a song that's been played over the last 25 years, and that is what this podcast is about, the 25th anniversary of the debut album from Spock's Beard, The Light. Thank you for joining the podcast. My name is Roy Avon, and with me is Jeff Bailey. Hello. And we wanted to try and do a new series over this year, and we'll see how it goes. There's a lot of album anniversaries uh, coming along this year. Of course, we did a pretty major one, which was The Whirlwind and Scenes from My Memory, if you recall, back in uh, October, November of last year, where we covered both albums uh, with our group. And, uh, And so... With there being a bunch of big anniversaries with a lot of albums that we'll sort of mention as the year goes along, um, we want to try and feature some of these and do sort of smaller, shorter podcasts. Uh, We know a lot of them have gotten lengthy. uh, (laughs) And, uh, you know, we don't put a time limit. They are as long as they are. So apologies to anybody that sometimes finds it hard to listen to them. But... um, You know, we appreciate everybody. Anyway, so what we're going to do here is just go over the uh, makings of the album, the origins behind some of the songs as we've been told them by Neil and some of the band. We have a few interview clips and a few uh, unique live clips, demos, things like that that we might play. Of course, the album's only four songs, um, but they are really long. uh, You know, the light's 15 minutes, the water is 23 minutes, I believe. So you have... um, you have quite a lengthy debut here for only four tracks. And uh, yep. and so uh, we'll cover, you know, as much as we can. Some of it is stuff that may be known to the diehard prog fan or the diehard Neil fan, but still might be a fun listen, we hope. Um, a couple of things, you know, jump out right away to me when, when going back and listening to this again, because it is now might listen to from time to time. Um, but, you know, songs like The Water, maybe On the Edge, I don't listen to as much. And, uh, you know, I think what's amazing about an album like this is that it sounds like a seasoned band. And in fact, when they recorded this, they weren't even a band really yet. And and Neil hadn't written progressive rock at this point, at least not published at that point to release this as a debut album and it to be in such high quality. Uh, I think when you go back and listen to it, I think it's one of the best debut albums a band has ever made, especially in progressive rock. And I, I just am floored by it every time. Yeah, absolutely. No, and you're right. I mean, Neil does say in it, in, in his book that you know a lot of people maybe think he's a sort of diehard prog person, and certainly those are parts of his influences. But he hadn't. He says he hadn't written ever written that type of music until until this point, um, and he'd. I mean, I think it's probably well known that Neil had tried a whole lot of different avenues for his career and it had pretty much got him nowhere. And, you know, these these demos were pretty much a last resort of writing something almost that um, that he enjoyed, but that he couldn't ever imagine in... 19, I think he started to write it in 1990, but you know, couldn't ever imagine in 1990 at the height of grunge or whatever was going on then that anybody would be interested in this and yet um you know here we are 30 years after him writing it 25 years after it came out um, talking about it which is pretty amazing the series of events that led to the album being written uh and then these particular members uh being joined 
uh, and how that all you know came to be is pretty amazing. And it really has really is like all the stars sort of aligning. I mean, you had an artist that was really down on his luck, struggling, felt he had all this talent and just had not made it and didn't know what else to do. Uh, ends up in some self-help program where he's advised to just try something in a nutshell. And he, and this is what he tries and then gets put in a sort of a makeup band at a, at a, a jam band evening at a club. And that's how he meets Nick DiVirgilio. I mean, these are things that are uh, amazing and, and you, you couldn't write it if you were putting a movie uh, together. <laughs> um, when I was interviewing Neil for my book, uh, I asked him about all of that, and and he goes into a pretty lengthy explanation, which we'll play some of that here, um, and then and then we'll play a, a demo bit of the light. But let's go into uh, Neil talking in more detail about um, what he went through and how um, one thing led to another. The story of the light would start in 1991. I was pretty miserable. I had I know that I had gone to play on the street in Europe, and then I was pretty uh, miserable. Uh, I came back and uh, was really no better for it. And in fact, in a way, I was worse off because I had quit the band that I, the working band that I was in, that was making money, and so I had to go out and like generate gigs, you know, in restaurants, and it was pretty miserable time. So the girlfriend that I had at the time suggested that we do this thing called the advanced course, the landmark education advanced course, which is a motivational weekend uh, course. And then on the last day, they gave some homework. And the homework was to keep telling your story, your, your miserable story of your life, uh, and try to poke holes in it and then but also to look at look at the moments of inspiration that you had had I realized that um, I had forgotten my true love somehow I had become this brooding singer-songwriter trying to get a deal in LA with no little or no success and I realized I wanted to do that wasn't why I got into music in the first place. I got into music because I loved it and I wanted to do big pieces of music. I wanted to do, yeah, I wanted to do pop songs. Yeah. You know, but I wanted to do West Side Story and Heart of the Sunrise. And, you know, uh, so I had kind of had a, an awakening in that course. And, uh, the two weeks after that, I think I wrote the light, go the way you go and the water it all just kind of poured out like a breakthrough thing. And uh, in those days, also, I demoed stuff um, really quickly. I mean, I think I did the demos really fast. And then um, the next thing that I did was I thought it'd be cool to have my brother Al play guitar on it. I didn't have any, any kind of idea about starting a band or anything like that yet. Um Actually, that was really Al's idea that came later. But I, so I took my uh, Porta Studio over to my brother Alan's house. He lived in Silmar, California at the time. I was living in Culver City, and I um, took it over there, and he played on uh, everything, I guess. Uh, I mean, I remember him particularly, you know, the amazing stuff that he did on the water and the light and Oddly enough, the, the the tracks that he recorded, we couldn't recreate some of the really cool stuff that happened. <laughs> so some of the stuff that you hear on the album is actually flown from the Florida studio cassette onto the ADATS, and the, which was what we were, recorded the album on, the Elisa's ADAT right. recorders. And uh, so some of the stuff that you hear is actually flown from the cassette demo onto the master tapes, <laughs> which is pretty crazy. But there was, there was just some magic that happened there that we just loved, some weird noises that we, would, we couldn't recreate. There, there was like a radio announcer that was coming through Al's rig while he was using a wah-wah pedal that really added to the Catfish Man section. And 
Yeah, so Al played on it, and he he didn't seem to really dig it that much, I thought. And um, I didn't think that he really liked it very much. And then I think two or three weeks later, he called me on the phone, just completely excited. He was in... Uh, he was he was on vacation and he called me and he said, "Dude, this stuff's killer. We got to start a band." And I was so burned out. I was so jaded. I was so depressed. I said, "A band? Oh my god, that's horrible. What a horrible thought." Because I've been, we'd both been in so many bands that rehearsed, rehearsed, and worked so hard, and then you know nothing ever happened, or we just broke up, or got close and got really disappointed. All of those things. So that was the beginning. That was how the demos got done, and then. When it came time for us to look for a band, um, we started to you know talk to all the local guys that we knew, and I didn't think, again, my my thinking on LA musicians was that they were only going to want to get involved in something that paid money. So I didn't think that anybody that was good enough to play this would actually want to do it. Um, but Al persevered, and we started going to jam nights to look for look for players. And one of my favorite stories about the, the whole Foxbeard phenomena is, <laughs> if I can call it that, is that we went to the Vine Street Bar and Grill in L.A. on the Monday night jam night. Now, on Monday night, they had musicians come and they would have a station for each position, you know, bass, guitar, keys, whatever, drums. Um... And they would put everybody's name in a hat. And they would randomly pick out people's names. So that night, they picked names out of the hat, and it was Neil Morse, Alan Morse, and Nick DiVirgilio. You know, there was about 40, 50 musicians there, I think, as I remember. And uh, I, uh, what I really remember is how badly I played. I was like, I think I played my solo in the wrong key. I mean, I was just, I was horrible. But we talked to Nick afterwards. Who, he, Nick was amazing. He must have, I don't think he... I don't even think Nick was 21. Uh, he was super young and had a beard. And uh, But we talked to him afterwards, and he said, yeah, I love Prague. You know, Phil Collins is one of my favorites. And, yeah, lo and behold, he actually came to my house the next day, picked up a cassette demo, and then called me back, I think, right away and said, I'm in. This is amazing. And then we got Dave Maros, who we knew, and uh, Rio came later. Uh, Rio originally was supposed to just help us out at our live shows. That's why he's not credited. Uh, he's not actually credited on the Light album. I did all the keyboards on the Light album, but we added Rio later because uh, he was great and he was so much fun. <laughs> Critical masses stand by. 
So that was an excerpt from the Neil's original demo of um, the track The Light. And you can tell that even at that stage, it's, you know, it's pretty much fully formed. Everything on that, um, from the program drums, the keyboards were played by Neil, apart from um, the guitar overdubs in his very distinctive, unique style that Al has added to it. And, and again, it's incredible to think that the light, the water, and go the way you go. Neil wrote those three tracks in a week, um, you know, which is really quite incredible um, given the complexity and everything that is going on with them. Um, go the way you go is the the second track in the album, and it's a twelve minute long track. And Neil talks um, in some of the sleeve notes about uh, writing this. Uh, the chorus came to him while he was sitting in a traffic jam in LA he happened to have a keyboard in the car and so he started um, to write it there and and this is this is an interesting song because it's one of the the few that has been played live in really all three incarnations of the band we can nitpick about how many incarnations there have been but um, with Neil leading it with Nick leading it and with Ted leading it and in fact if you look up um, Setlist FM or one of those sites you'll find that after June Go The Way You Go is the second most played live song that that Spocks have played Um, and again it it was played by the Neil Morse band at Morsefest it was played in the other bands medley um, by Transatlantic on the first tour um, so it's a song that is featured right throughout um, all of Spock's beers and indeed lots of Neil's side projects as well. And it's a, it's just a, a great epic. And again, that kind of uh, very positive, uplifting, um, you know, hands in the air type stuff that 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 we know Neil for um, nowadays. You know, it's it's all it's all there in that track. And when you hear, you know, the Neil Morse band, I mean, I remember hearing them play that at Morse Fest, and that was kind of one of the little surprises that they kept up their sleeve for for Morse Fest in 2015. Yeah, and you know, it it just sounded like a song that could be on, you know, one of their albums as well. You know, fantastic. Yeah, there's something about this song that sort of fits that allows all the different versions of the band, different eras to approach a song from this album. And this being the one, it sort of makes the most sense. I think the light, they did it when they would reunite with Neil, they would bring that song out. Usually that's the song that in June. And then the water is a little bit heavy handed, obviously. And, and uh, that has been played by the different eras in bits. Um, But go the Mm -hmm. way you go. Seems like the one that is just, that fits right in and one that they could all play. I've seen the band play it a number of times, Cruise to the Edge and and uh, uh, Progressionation at Sea and all these times that they've done it. So, um, I, yeah, one of my favorite tracks. One of the things that I love about this album, and I think it's the underrated part of it, is the production. And for a sort of demo, uh, you know, the drum sound on this is absolutely spectacular. The snare sound is one of my favorite snare sounds ever. And it's just so raw and upfront and dry and not overproduced. And it just sounds great. 
And sometimes I wish more albums sounded like this. Uh, I just think that helps bring across the sound of what they were trying to go for. Yeah, and yet, I mean, I think that actually, you know, Neil talks about, that, you know, they didn't use a lot of expensive equipment. He says in his testimony book that they made the album for about three and a half thousand dollars. Yeah, and, that's amazing. And, and mixed it in three seven-hour days. And he said, whereas today, that's how long it takes to set up a mix, never mind actually do anything, you know, so it's uh, incredible. Uh, we have a, a clip of Alan Morse, uh, Neil's brother, of course, and guitarist uh, who has been through all the iterations of the band, um, talking about how he first heard the music uh, and a little bit of recording it. So we'll play that clip and then uh, go into a little bit of Go The Way You Go. Well, yeah, the original stuff, I mean, the, the very first things, um, Neil pretty much wrote all himself. Uh, I didn't really write on that. I mean, except for some very minimal sort of like, hey, how about I think the distance of the that type of stuff. Right. You know, but uh, it was pretty much all his writing. And, you know, he had written, uh, I think in particular, The Light, you know, and... Uh, and, you know, but I said, yeah, you know, I'll play on the thing if you want, you know. So he came over and I played on it. And then, I don't know, a couple of days later, I was listening to it. And I went, this is killer, man. We should, we got to do this. This is too much fun. So I called him up and said, yeah, come on, let's do it. And he's like, oh, all right, sure, let's do it, you know. Right. I mean, because we thought, you know, I mean, oh, nobody listens to this kind of stuff anymore, you know. I mean, we, it, we just figured it's just going to be just for ourselves and, and not trying to you know, do anything there.
So the third track and longest, uh, the big epic number, uh, is The Water. Um, a very unique song in the discography of the band. I don't think there's another song like it. There's a lot of elements that are present in this song that have been in other Spucksbeard songs. And then, of course, there's parts that he, they've never really done. Uh, the angry section in the middle, of course. Um, is unlike anything the band has done ever since. Uh, and there's a lot of really cool jazzy moments in this song, um, yeah. very uniquely written, um, an underrated masterpiece track, really. Uh, I, I don't think it's one that um, gets appreciated enough. And I, I probably fall into that category, but every time I do hear it, I'm floored at how genius of a song it is. And it's a shame that it uh, doesn't get a little bit more recognition. Um, but, uh, but of course, Neil has talked about how this song doesn't, it, this song isn't really where he is at the anymore. And, and I guess that's why he doesn't sing it. Yeah. I mean, it, well, it's, it's interesting. I mean, we, we, just looking and reading about this, pre preparing for this, and that, that possibly is one of the things that, you know, people kind of say or conclude, but, Again, looking back through the history of the song, I, as far as I can see, when Neil was in the band, they only played the water in full twice, and and it was at their first and second gigs, and after that it went. Um, so, what whether that means that he was uncomfortable about it then, or whether it took twenty three minutes of a of a set whenever maybe they were playing in our support slot for Dream Theater or something and you could kind of fit two other songs in. I don't know. Um and I know that the band did actually revive it in full, I think in twenty fifteen, whenever Ted was in the band. Um you know, it's it's it, it it has its uncomfortable moments and to quote Neil on it again from the sleeve notes he wrote I was really angry in those days at how my life had turned out but I was really sorry about it and you can hear that in the next section but through it all you can hear us reach for the sky 
and it makes me feel uncomfortable. The FU section makes me feel uncomfortable now because I'm not in that space anymore, thank God. I apologize to anyone who might be offended for it. I think when you take it at, at the whole song um, together, you know, it's it, it's it's a it, it's unlike, you know, anything that I can think of directly. You know, we, we talk about influences, you know, you know the, the music in this album, Neil talks about being inspired by seeing Yes and Rick Wakeman opening up for Black Sabbath. You know, this this is prog rock. It doesn't sound anything like Yes. You know, it doesn't sound like Rush. It's got all these weird, you know, Senior Velasco mystical voodoo love dance. It's got that, the water itself, it's got that bit, the run in the race bit. You talked about some of the jazzy moments. You know, that's a really kind of almost sort of scat jazz type section. It's It's such an amazing blend of music that that it's hard to even think you know is there is there anybody else who is producing stuff like this and even you know if we talk about gentle giant or those bands they they had a variety of things but there's something really unique about the spock sound that got crafted on this album and which which to be honest you know the band has done a huge variety of things but it's still kind of the core of their sound is encapsulated you know, in what was envisaged in sort of, you know, three songs that were, three or four songs that were written over a relatively short space of time. I think where Neil's uniqueness in songwriting and and the light bulb moment for him that that hit that was this album is is combining his singer songwriter talents with yeah. orchestral and progressive stuff, for lack of a better yeah. word, but. That's what it is, because at the core, is at least his era of Spock's beard, and also later on, he, his great moments are simple melodies played simply with piano and acoustic guitar. And yeah. that is his talent. Then applying that to crazy notes and time signatures and repeating themes and all that kind of stuff, that is what makes it the prog epic craziness that we like but if you yeah. stripped all of that away they're great verses and melodies that are strummed on acoustic or played on piano and yeah. that's what is the genius of this music is that it's simple and complicated at the exact same time and the song like the water is exactly that yeah um and, uh, and i mean i mean the other thing is you know, an incredible rhythm section. It does has to have to be said, and the water is a track that really, you know, puts puts them to the test through a whole variety of styles. You know, Nick De Virgilio just being incredibly versatile and adding the backing vocals. Um, you know, Dave Maros, just uh, you know, an incredible tone and touch to his bass playing that again just makes it into something really really special and actually as well Dave actually plays French horn in this album too you know so I think many French horn playing bass players well, actually John Entwistle did that didn't he yeah well, did sometimes he in the who yeah 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 a bunch of um, uh, no crazy <laughs> really crazy talented guys that would just land in each other's laps like this um, the one thing I, I also want to say about at least the water is that when you listen to that part the few part there's a raw honesty to it that comes across and I, I, I could understand how somebody that wrote, wrote it listens to it and says, I'm not in that headspace anymore. But just as a listener, even 25 years later listening to it, uh, it, it sounds fresh and, and authentic and that's why it still works. So yeah. You know, yeah. it, you take the good with the bad with it. I think. Yeah, um, and equally, equally honest is that is the bit that follows it because it, you know, it cuts down to that. I'm so sorry. I really, I'm so so sorry. You know, and it's, you know, the, the, again, the contrasts of it are, are fantastic. And the ending, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a classic Neil Morse epic ending. Um, and this this time with um female backing vocals as well which add a whole kind of nearly Pink Floydy type vibe um, to it on that Reach for the Sky part at the very very end um, maybe we should play a clip of that um, before we do that we have a short clip of Nick uh, talking about 
meeting the guys and joining the band from his perspective. So I want to play that and we'll jump from that into the water from from Progfest in 1995. Um, I met Neil and Alan at a blues jam in L.A. one night, totally randomly, and we ended up sitting in, the, in with, uh, with the band, all the three of us, because you just put your name up on a chalkboard. Yeah. They called people up and they called the three of they called the three of us up. So that was our first gig, our first jam together, and we exchanged phone numbers. And um, there was a lot of drinking going on. I don't even know how, but we probably sounded horrible in that night. I have no idea. But um, then they put together a rehearsal slash uh, you know uh, networking thing at a rehearsal studio, like a little while after that. And that's when I first heard Neil's. Um, well, we jammed more, and Neil said, "Listen, I wrote all this." this uh this music you should come check it out and let me know what you think and i'm trying to put a band together for it and i went to his apartment and he gave me a cassette and it was all the songs on the light demoed out um which have been released since i'm sure on all the b-sides and different versions of cds these demos have been heard but you know he programmed all the drums for everything and these these were complete songs it was crazy Mm -hmm. how much work he had put into these these demos and it was really good i mean i was there with my wife my then girlfriend but same girl I'm with now, Tiffany. And we both said, man, this is impressive. <laughs> and uh, I told him I was, you know, into it. Let's see what would, you know, like to jam with him sometime. And we got together and played, and I was in the band. That was it. We decided to go for it. I mean, it's pretty much after, you know, the, the second day. Because he had all the songs in the light ready, the water, all that stuff was there. And so those are the first tunes we started getting into. And um, had another bass player at the time. And uh, Rio was not in the band yet. It was just a four-piece, and we uh, we tried to play a few things, and then uh, we realized we needed more uh, members. So then Dave and Rio came along, and Alan put up some cash so we could go in and record the record, and uh, the rest is history, really.
Thank you, Brockfest. Thank you very much. Okay, so that was the ending of the water, and you can you can almost envisage Neil with his and his kind of classic pose with his hand in the air, even even at that stage, um, for that conclusion. The last track in the album is On the Edge, and I, I mentioned earlier on Neil Neil had written the other three songs in a week, and he does say um, he, he wanted to write something shorter that they could do as an encore, because you can't really do a 23-minute track as an encore, and so he, he wrote um, this, and again, you know, in terms of, he talks about the lyrics and how he, he just improvised a lot of them, so there's things that kind of don't really necessarily mean anything inside goes outside feels um but it's a really really powerful song and i actually think it's a bit of a for me anyway it was a bit of a forgotten song because you you the other three were um you know unforgettable in their own way and and that one was tucked away in the end and i have to admit it wasn't a song that i noticed massively until I went to see Spock's Beard in 2008, and round about the time they were touring their Spock's Beard live album, and that was when Neil had left the band. But Nick, um, Nick was fronting the band, and they opened the show. They did a perfect day, which was the song from their album, and then they did On the Edge, and it started with that and the crowd all went yeah. You know, and and it was just such a brilliant opener. And I was kind of going, "Oh, that's that track from the end of the light that I never listened to." And it was such a good live song. Yeah. It was absolutely fantastic. And from then on, it's just gone. You know, I, I just I talk many times about sometimes you have to hear a song live to get it. That was an absolute classic case of that for me. Yeah, I agree. I think it's, for me, it's been the forgotten song as well. Although there was a live version uh, from, I think, the first live bootleg that they did that I had for a while. And I always liked the live version of this song a lot. Um, But you're right. It is another fantastic song, which is why when you go back and you listen to this album from beginning to end and, you know, it's almost 60 minutes by the time you get through the first three songs. (laughs) So, (laughs) so... It's so, part of it is just exhaustion at that point <laughs> to get to listen to one more song. But that is sort of the genius of that song is because it's a little shorter. It's a little bit faster paced. And and uh, once you once it gets going, it's a, it's a really kick ass song. Um, I got this album uh, third. I went backwards from Kindness of Strangers and then got Beware of Darkness, and then got The Light. And it was all in the span of a few months, because once I discovered this band, I lost my mind. And, <laughs> uh, But it was amazing, though, that when you kept going backwards, that like like I did, that I, I first, then I heard The Light, this album, and I just couldn't believe that yet there was one album better than the other two that I had already thought were amazing. <laughs> um and it's so cool because at that point you don't even know this band exists or a guy like Neil Morse is anything or anybody that you should be paying attention to. And I think it's pretty yeah. amazing. Uh, 25 years later, the effect that this album has had on me, all of our audience that loves this album, you know, all of our prog report team, everybody is just, uh, it's affected everybody in, in, in such a large way. Uh, and open so many doors, you know, whichever way you have it. I mean, if you came in through the Dream Theater door or if you came through the Spock Spear door or the Transatlantic door, all you know, one yeah. way you got to the other, you know what I mean? And and that led to, to the Flower King's door, which led to the, you know, and so on. And it's, yeah. it's just yeah. a remarkable starting point, whichever way you want to pick, whichever starting point you want to pick. Um, yeah, yeah, totally. And uh, and it's cool. I, on the Edge is the one song I haven't seen them play live at, at all. Um, yeah. So that would be kind of a cool, really rare track to play at the next Morris Fest. Just saying. If um, if anyone's if anyone's listening, <laughs> if, anyone's if anyone's listening, can you pass it on to? <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, yeah, so I think. Um, yeah, like you, like you, I started. 
I started later on. I started with Beware of Darkness and worked backwards. And I don't know if you, if you've seen. I think maybe you have seen it because I think it's maybe in your book. And um, well, there's a really great chapter about this and lots of other albums from the last um, mm-hmm. number of years. I'll do the plugs <laughs> in case you're uh, too embarrassed to do it. Um, but, but I started Beware of Darkness and then was amazed by it and so and so you immediately go right what else have they done because again you buy an album i didn't know if it was their first or their second or whatever before the internet you had to sort of try and rummage around and there was a little mail order company in the uk and they sent out kind of these like 20 a4 you know badly photocopied sheets and you sort of ran your eye down it to see if you could find oh yes there's another album the light and the European album didn't have that um, very strange. Uh, I don't. I don't know how to describe the cover other than it's like a massive uh, green pea with a face and a red pea with a face looking yeah. at a light. Um, which is a bit, it always reminds me of um, the first King Crimson album. That kind of strange faces, but but the European album didn't ha- had a different cover. It had like a brown um, cover with. Um, sort of a band of light across it and again it was only many years later that I that I realised that most people in the world actually knew the album by a different cover but again was equally um, blown away and I actually do think, I mean uh, everything we have said about the production and, and the playing on it I stand by I still think my favourite way to listen um, to those tracks is that um, that album, the the official bootleg, which is the recording of Progfest um, 95, I, I think there's a power and an energy in the live performances of these songs that sometimes just gives them a little bit of an edge. Um, but that's not to take away in the album in any way at all, because basically that show is the album, plus I think um, Thoughts. Thoughts is added in. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, and what else can I say about it? I mean, you know, uh, there's 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 lots of there, there's so many things to draw in. I have have a friend who is a a piano player and who loves all sorts of dark um, Eastern European classical music and um, and anything kind of strange. And I, I've tried him to turn him on to lots of different prog. He used to love the Senior Velasco bit of the light. <laughs> that was kind of the bit that he. He really loved the piano solo in it, um, and I think they did it. I mean, I think the songs from this album have continued to be part of, you know, Spock's set list on pretty much every tour, um, as they have gone from strength to strength and done other things. But it would be it would be a wonderful thing to hear um, to hear that album played in full sometime. And a lot of bands in their in their uh, latter years tend to do that. I think it would I think it would be great to see. I think there's a lot of people would love to see a sort of Spock's reunion of some sort to play, to play that album. But uh, yeah, we can, we can, but wish. <laughs> well, we can always drop the hints. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and I think we'll, we'll stop there. Thank you everybody for listening. As always, all the other podcasts are online. Um, and we can't thank you guys enough for the response and the downloads. They keep growing and growing. And um, it's just amazing. The, the, uh, followers and audience and community that is built around, uh, you know, the prog report and what we do. We're so thankful. And, um, and, uh, you know, it's been a few years now we've been doing this and it just keeps getting better. So, you know, we'll try and do a bunch of great podcasts for you and other things. And, uh, you know, we want to hear from you. So, um, comment on these, tell us the stories of how you, Discover Delight, your favorite songs, other podcasts, topics you'd want to see, anything like that, just let us know. You can email us at contact at progreport.com or just comment on all the posts on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and so on. And with that, we will close with On the Edge live, and we'll see you all next time. Thank you. Bye. On the Edge!
Edge. Children are all 